This morning's reading is from Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 14. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. First, he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second, and by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties, Again and again he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, and since that time he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. This is the word of the Lord. So when you think of the image of a priest, what comes to mind? Do you have one in your mind? Okay. Priest, what does it look like? The book that was um, written to a group of people probably in Rome called the Epistle of Hebrews. It's what we read this morning. It's an interesting epistle because a lot of people think it was actually a sermon. So you thought I preached long sermons, right? Other people are longer. And this is going to be a short sermon. You're going to be out before noon. Because I know I just preached it in the first service. And that's why I'm talking so slow, because I want to stretch it a little further. (laughs) But the, the, the writer of the book of Hebrews, he actually paints pictures with words. If you read Hebrews, it's like one picture after another. The temple, sacrifices, the priests, their garments. So the people who first read this epistle or heard it, they actually had an image in mind. If they were devout Jews and wealthy enough to do it, they would have gone to the temple at least once in their lifetime, or that was an objective, maybe more. Even though they were in Rome and didn't see the temple every day, they had the Hebrew scriptures that taught about the sacrificial system. So if the writer of the book of Hebrews would say to them, what's your image of a priest, it probably would look like this. That's a, an artist's rendition, probably quite accurate because the Levitical priesthood was described in great detail in the Old Testament. That's probably the way the priest looked. 
that thing that's hanging on the outside, I mean, the garment, it's like a, an apron. It's called an ephod. The thing that's hanging from his neck by gold chains, those are 12 stones, each a different stone, a different precious metal. And each stone represents the 12 tribes of Israel, symbolically residing right here, close to the heart of the priest. It's as though he's carrying his people in when he enters the holy place and the holy of holies. That's the image they would have had in mind. If you were to ask them, what's a temple? This is probably the image they would have had in mind. It was gigantic. This is a rendition of what we think Solomon's temple looked like. There was a later temple built by Herod. That temple, in some ways, was apparently even more grand because Herod wanted to get some political capital out of it, so he built a really big temple. But the elements of the temple were the same whether it was Solomon's or Herod's temple. You notice what appears to be like a fence. It's kind of a wall that goes all the way around the temple court. That wall separated the Gentiles from the Jews who were there to worship. I would imagine that 99 or 100% of you are Gentiles in this audience. You couldn't have passed through that gate If you had passed through that gate, there would be a sign on the gate etched in stone that said, pass through here at risk of your own death. In other words, you could have received the death penalty for going inside that sacred place. Not sure it always happened, but that was the rule. That temple was the high point in Jerusalem. Not only was it the highest structure, it was on a hill. It was central to their, not just worship, but their way of life. It was a part of their culture that was deeply embedded in them. If you were going to enter into the temple, this temple right here is a picture of what it must have looked like. As the priest, you would have had to pass through the sacrificial area. You would have had to have made sacrifices, animal sacrifices, on behalf of the people and then washed your hands in a laver. And then you could pass on into those two doorways and into the regular temple. Once you entered the temple as a priest, it would have looked something like this. You see to the right there are candelabras. Those candles are made of gold and they are carved as a budding tree, almonds on them and a variety of other fruit, indicating life, the life that's given by God, the sustaining life of God for His people. But also, those candles were always lit. It was the job of the priest to make sure, among other things, that those candles didn't go out because the light of the presence of God symbolically was always with his people. There were seven lights on each of those candelabras, um, a picture of perfection. 
Right there in the middle where the priest is standing, you see behind him a table. It's called the table of showbread. Table of showbread was the place where the priest ate the bread, but only when he was allowed to for ceremonial purposes. And it symbolized the bread of life that comes from God for his people. You might look at it and think communion. Interesting analogy. As the priest would continue up those steps, he would enter into the Holy of Holies. Now, there's a cutout of the Holy of Holies here. Otherwise, it would be a very thick veil between the steps and what you can see behind those steps. A curtain, a veil that was said to be as thick as the width of a man's hand. That's how thick it was. The priest would enter the Holy of Holies only once a year and on the Day of Atonement to atone for all the sins of all the people. And inside there you see the Ark of the Covenant right in the middle of those heavenly creatures. And the Ark of the Covenant was Aaron's budding rod, at least early on in the tabernacle, and manna early on in the tabernacle that never decayed. Again, a sign of the provision of God. And inside that temple, there was sweet-smelling incense that was burning all the time. What's the point of that? The sweet smell of incense, the bread, the light of the candles, is, among other things, a symbol of hospitality. Because in Near Eastern culture, if someone were to visit your home, It was your responsibility to care for them. I mean, give them the best that you had. You wanted everything to be spotless and clean and to smell as good as possible. When the priest entered the temple, notice what he left behind. The hubbub and the the busyness of streets, which quite frankly were littered with the manure of animals. Feet that were dirty. He enters that sanctuary and washes his hands symbolically and enters into a a holy place that smells beautiful. Smell of the animals is gone. The smell of blood from a sacrifice. The mud on his sandals. He's symbolically in the presence of God, and that presence of God is hospitable. It's welcoming. So what would the people have thought when the writer of the book of Hebrews began to talk about the temple and the priest? Images like those. Those images are are way far away from us, and it's too bad they are which is why I put them on the screen to remind us of the story. Here's what the writer of the book of Hebrews says about all the images that you just saw and especially about the priest. He said, all those images, all those pictures that I'm painting for you with words, all of them are like shadows. Shadows of the real thing. You know, shadows can be murky and sometimes not very accurate, but at other times, shadows can be pretty accurate. 
I remember as a little kid, I don't know if anybody does this anymore, but when I was in elementary school, it was all the rage to do this. I think when you were in about second or third grade, they would have all the children stand sideways or sit sideways, and they would project a very bright light on your face. And then they would outline the silhouette of your entire head. That silhouette still exists in my mother's house. And it's of me. And if I want to know what I looked like when I was that age, I actually can look at that silhouette. I can't see my eyes. I can't really see my hair except for a little tuft that was up there. But the shadow, it was Bobby. That's what mom sees when she looks at it. But then on occasion, I push a garage door opener, and her garage door opens up, and the real Bobby walks in. And inevitably, my mom's not in this service. She goes to the first, so I can say this. Inevitably, she's got a list of things for me to do. <laughs> Will you fix this? Will you do that? And, and she sees me in living color. And I do every, anything she needs. But the shadow is not exactly the same, is it, as the presence. The writer says, all these images I've given you in this wonderful book that I'm describing to you, they're all shadows of something that's greater. The temple is a shadow of a heavenly dwelling. And the priest, most importantly, the priest was a shadow of things to come. And the things to come have happened. Jesus came, and he became what was behind the shadow of a human high priest. What was the shadow of a human high priest? Well, the author lays it out for us. He says the high priest, he sacrificed daily. That was his job. It was the requirement of the law. Every day, sacrifices were made. That priest, when he did the sacrifices, remember the picture when he was in the holy place and then eventually in the holy of holies, he was standing all the time standing and ministering on behalf of the people. Never sat down, no chairs in there. Third, the writer of the book of Hebrews says something else. He offered multiple sacrifices over and over and over again. And all of them were necessary according to the law. Third thing he says, even though he offered sacrifices, none of those sacrifices was enough to absolve the people of their sins. In other words, it didn't do the full job. It was just a shadow of what was to come. And finally, he says, all of this, these sacrifices, they point to Jesus. So how does Jesus come out of the shadows? How does Jesus fulfill what was a shadow and make it real? 
Again, the author tells us. Unlike the priest, says the author of the book of Hebrews, when Jesus entered the temple, he finished a sacrifice, and then when he was done, he sat down. He sat down at the right hand of God the Father, a symbol that it is finished. The sacrifice is done. It's over. Jesus completed it. It never needed to be repeated again. Only one sacrifice was needed, and that sacrifice, says the author, was absolutely sufficient to wash away sins. Actually, he says the old sacrifice, it was just a reminder of sins. This new sacrifice, it accomplished the mission of eliminating sin. And further, he says, this new sacrifice, it perfected all those who receive it by faith. I don't want to call you out, but I know most of you don't carry your Bible to church. So, if you don't have it, get out your phone, okay? I know, I understand. And I want, I want you to read with me the last few verses of our passage. Beginning in verse 8 of chapter 10. I guess one reason is because I want you to know I'm not making this up. I want you to remember what you heard. First he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance to the law. They had to do it, but it wasn't pleasing to God. He doesn't mean he hated them. He just meant it was a shadow. Then he said, here I am. I come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. That's the first covenant in order to establish the second covenant. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus once for all. Day after day, Every priest stands and performs his righteous duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. Can I interject? Think of the book of Revelation. When the Lamb of God annihilates Satan and all evil. That's when his enemy becomes his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made righteous or holy. Before I walked into the first service this morning, someone came up to me and said that they take seriously the weekly email that goes out about the Scripture passage, and they always read it. 
And she said she and her husband were reading the passage, and they got to the end, and they saw that phrase, that he makes perfect those who are becoming perfect, in effect. And she said, we, we stopped. And said, What's that about? It almost seems like a contradiction. Made perfect those who are becoming perfect. Well, if you had asked me that question, and as a matter of fact, even before I heard that question from her, I was prepared this morning to tell you about that. And I was going to use two words, typical of theological people. I was going to say there is a difference between the imputed righteousness of Christ and the imparted righteousness of Christ. And see, you would have had a glazed over look on your face, right? But let me tell you what it means. Don't glaze over. What it actually means is that Christ made himself the sacrifice for sins in his body, and in that act, he imputed his righteousness to you. Does that mean you're perfectly righteous? No, it's a legal act where God in Jesus Christ says, because of what I've done for you, I am declaring you to be righteous. The imparted righteousness of Christ, that's the process of sanctification, perfecting those who have already been made perfect. Okay, now let me go back to the person who caught me right before I walked into the first service. And she said, we came up with an analogy that helped us. And I thought to myself, well, maybe it'll help me too. And as she told me the analogy, I began to remember being a child. When I was a a young boy, we used to come from Florida to Louisville, Kentucky, where my grandparents were. And inevitably, we would come in the summer, sometimes kind of late summer, but when we would come, there was a huge apple tree in the backyard. No apples in Florida, in case you don't know. Oranges, no apples. We were mesmerized by the apples. But they were never fully ripe. Not in the summer when we were there. They were green. I mean, they were perfect apples. But they were green. And we used to eat them. And I can remember my grandmother saying, don't eat too many of them apples, it'll give you a tummy ache. Well, she was right, but we kept eating them. We, we just wanted those apples. And honestly, everything about the apple, even when it was that small, was a perfect apple. But it wasn't fully ripe. That perfect apple was growing into its ultimate perfection. I actually like that image. It's accessible, isn't it? Jesus says, because of my sacrifice, you've been declared perfect. But you're like that tiny little green apple. All my perfection has been transferred to you by my legal authority but you're being perfected day by day by day. I'm imparting day by day my sanctifying righteousness in your heart by faith. Wow. 
That's amazing. Both and. And it's the good news. So as I was uh, looking over this this week, um, you know, a big job of a preacher is to try to figure out a new way to say the same thing, right? You've heard this message before. I've told this story before. So as I, I thought about the story and the message, which is right at the heart of our faith, I wondered, I wondered if when I showed up this Sunday morning, there may be some of you who are here who have heard the story over and over again, or maybe just a few times. And it seems compelling. It's like, that's the greatest story ever. And as a matter of fact, when you've heard the story, you've, you've felt this tug in your heart. That's not a weird emotion, by the way. That's the Spirit of God saying, come to me. I'm your great high priest. I've demonstrated it. And just come. Will you come? Maybe you haven't come yet. It's time. It's time. It's the greatest story ever. And it's true. And it can be true for you. Let me make it simple. You know all you need to do? Say yes. Just say yes. Yes, Lord, I hear your voice. Yes, Lord, I'm coming. Yes, I want to serve you. Also thought above other people, probably the majority of you, including me, who this morning would say, I've heard the story so many times I could tell it in my sleep. It's almost got a routine to me. Well, in the midst of hearing this story, in the midst of believing, have you perhaps on occasion, lapsed into the do-it-yourself mentality? Have you on occasion been so weighed down by your own imperfections that you do not believe once again that you have been made perfect because of Jesus Christ? Have you gotten to the place over and over again when you've struggled with sin like I have that you come back to God and you say, God, I'm sorry, please don't punish me. You know how antithetical that is to the gospel? That's not repentance. Not for the Christian. For the Christian, repentance is saying, Lord, I know I haven't measured up Thank you for grace. Help me to live like you called me to live. Because you gave me your righteousness. No matter where you are, I think everybody is in one of those two situations. And I think everybody today needs to pause for a moment 
and say yes. Maybe yes for the first time. Maybe yes for multiple times. Lord Jesus, I receive you. Make me like you. My friends, there is nothing that's more at the heart of the gospel than this. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you um, that you did not give us a ladder to righteousness. If you had, the ladder would have probably been too steep anyway. We would have slipped on the rungs. We would have fallen down. We would have become overwhelmingly discouraged. But instead of a ladder to righteousness, you offer your righteousness to us. We did nothing to deserve it. We'll never be able to deserve it. It is your free gift to us by faith. So Lord, for for that one who's heard the story and has felt the tug, we pray that you will give them the courage this morning just to say yes, Lord Jesus, I receive you. I can't do it on my own. For those of us who made that decision long ago, we pray that you'll help us remember that there's still no ladder to righteousness or perfection. You've done it for us. So we say, Lord, thank you. Help us to live for you. We pray, Lord, that by faith, you will seal the truth of your word to our hearts and make us grateful. In the name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.